Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Let me tell you a story about a man named, well, start even before that, 1898, it's 120 something years ago, Belfast, Ireland, as a lawyer and his wife Albert and Flora, they had a baby boy, his name was Clive, he was intelligent, he was thoughtful and things were going along okay for a while but at 10 years old, Flora, Clive's mother, became sick, she got cancer. Now, despite Clive's desperate prayers to save his mother, she succumbs to the cancer and dies. That's when Clive stopped believing in God. He was shipped off to boarding school, which just made matters worse. He was surrounded by seemingly meaningless religious activity. Anyway, he's smart. He gets into Oxford University, uh, but World War I hits. And Clive, like so many young men in Ireland at the time, decide he's going to volunteer. So he does his officer training and gets sent off to the Somme in France. Uh, And that just confirms his atheism. He's witnessing firsthand the horrors of trench warfare, including when his roommate and good friend is killed in battle. Of course, this just all goes to cement his firm knowledge that God does not, in fact, exist. Clive, though, gets home after the war, injured but all right, and begins his studies, first at Oxford and then at Cambridge Universities. He studies literature and philosophy. He becomes an academic, and he's an ardent atheist. His first publication, a work of poetry, is uh, ridiculing the belief in God. But Clive became friends with a number of Christians. He recounts later that these pesky Christians would keep coming into his life. It's now 1929. He's 31 years old. But despite his animosity to both Christians and animosity towards a belief in God, something begins to change in Clive. He reads Chesterton. He reads George MacDonald. He interacts with his friends and he does a lot of thinking. He would recount later, and this is quoting from one of his books, you must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen where he was living, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the third term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected, and reluctant convert in all of England. Clive Staples C.S. Lewis would go on to become one of the most influential Christian thinkers and writers of the 20th century, authoring dozens of books and essays, including the Narnia series, but many more books defending the Christian faith. It seemed impossible to his friends. The reality is that God performs the impossible and what I want to see happen today in our time together is for you to be encouraged through the study of this amazing passage encouraged 
in this particular truth, that the God that we worship, not only is he able, but he delights to do the impossible. And moreover, he delights to use his people to do it. Let me state that slightly differently. See, we are limited by both our sinful nature and by our inbuilt human capacity from being able to fully grasp what our God is capable of. So often we put limits on what we think could happen, even as we seek to live a life of faithfulness. In other words, we think and we limit what we think of as being possible. Whereas what we see in this passage today, in fact, over and over again in this passage, is that God does the impossible. And that this is never more the case than when the spread of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is on the line. So that's my aim as we study this text together, that the eyes of your hearts would be open to seeing what it is that God can really do as he has done for me this week. What he did in first century Palestine and beyond and what he can do here in 21st century Newcastle, Australia and beyond. With that in mind, would you just pray with me while we ask God to come and teach us. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of you. You are good. And Lord, I just just invite you right now to come and to teach us. Lord, prepare our hearts to hear what it is that you want to say to each one of us. Be with us, move amongst us by your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in the middle of teaching through the book of Acts, a study that we've entitled To the Ends of the Earth, because what we've been seeing in Acts is this unfolding of God's plans to bring his good news to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And especially so far, we've seen the role of the Holy Spirit in that story. This is a consistent theme throughout the book of Acts, He has moved crowds, he has moved individuals, and he's prepared hearts and directed believers to propel the gospel message as it moves successfully through Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria so far. But what we've seen so far in chapter 9, where we are today of Acts, and if you don't have a Bible, grab one at the back, we'll be working through it, is the beginning of a transition in chapter 9, where God has chosen one of his key instruments, namely Saul, who would become Paul, to be the one to bring the message to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, across the known world. So this Saul goes from primary persecutor to dauntless defender. He goes from hostile hater to ardent ally, from bitter foe to family. And not only that, we saw towards the end of the first half of chapter 9 that he immediately preaches Jesus in the synagogues. Paul grows in strength, the text says, he confounds the Jews and he is proving to them that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So that's last week. Now, by way of a brief overview for today, there's a very simple four-part structure to today's message, okay? Divided by, first by the person involved, there's two people, Paul and Peter, and each of those two people gets divided into two locations, so Paul has two locations, Damascus and then Jerusalem, and Peter has two locations, Lydda and then Joppa. So Paul in Damascus, Paul in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Peter in Lydda, Peter in Joppa. But as we travel through, we're going to see this repeated theme over and over again that God is doing impossible things. So let's open up our text. Acts chapter 9, verse 23. Remember, Paul has just been converted. He started preaching in Damascus in the synagogues. So it's still the gospel going just to Jews at this stage. 
And it says in verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. We actually have other places in the New Testament that talk about this time for Paul. It's spoken of here and also in two other places in the New Testament. First in Galatians chapter 1 and also in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Luke's priority with this book of Acts is to tell the whole big picture story, which with limited space means necessarily skipping over certain details. But if we put all three accounts together, we get an interesting picture of what's going on here. It turns out that Paul gives us a time frame in Galatians 1 for his conversion right up until this point here where he's fleeing Jerusalem. And that time frame is three years that's not all that happens in this time because also in Galatians as Paul is demonstrating basically the fact that he received the gospel not from man but directly from Jesus he reveals that during this time in Damascus he spent time in the desert in Arabia it says he went into Arabia now Arabia to Paul is not what Arabia is to you and me Arabia to you and me is that kind of chunk of land the peninsula between the Red Sea on one side and the and the Persian Gulf on the other side Um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Yemen, Oman, those kind of countries. That's not what Arabia is to Paul. Arabia to Paul is Nabataean Arabia, it's called. And it's basically this chunk of mostly Jordan and up into southern parts of modern Syria. In other words, Arabia bordered right on Damascus. And Damascus actually probably was a city within Arabia. It was a city that kind of went between um, authority under Rome and authority under the Nabataeans. We also know um, that the Jewish leaders were working together with the governor of Damascus to try and capture Paul. So it's not just one group of people that's after him. You actually get some insight into how Paul felt during this time. He reports it really as the pinnacle of his weakness in this whole section he gives on his suffering. Can you imagine for a second, you've been convinced that Jesus really is who he says he is. You've been persecuting the church. You've become convinced And you're preaching there to your fellow Jews. But there's no glorious conversion of the masses. No, instead Paul becomes a wanted man, chased out of the city, forced to climb into a basket. This basket, by the way, that he was lowered down out of the city wall, these baskets were used for getting rid of rubbish, refuse out of the city. That's why they were there, these big baskets. So Paul is basically taken out of the city like rubbish, forced to climb through the trash, forced to climb through the mud, away from his first ever God-given assignment. Now you think that this might just be enough for Paul. He's tried after all. He's given it a proper go, hasn't he? Is God just telling him to give up? He's done. Well, what does he do? Does he find a place to hide until everybody just forgets about this formerly zealous Christian hater? No. Paul ends up going to possibly the only place on the entire planet that's more dangerous than Damascus. Jerusalem. How does this make sense? Why run away from one dangerous situation only to enter another? How are we supposed to learn from that? On one hand, Paul is basically escaping a hopeless situation, anxious for his own life, and a minute later he walks through the gates of Jerusalem boldly. How are we supposed to determine the will of God for us when that's our example? See, the answer is not that we are called to avoid all possibility of risk. 
But neither is the answer the way to put ourselves in, in avoidable and unnecessary danger all the time either. The answer is something else altogether, that we are to hear God's unique leading in any given situation and to be obedient to that call. This is what we keep seeing over and over again throughout the book of Acts, that it is the Holy Spirit acting at all times through his faithful followers. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, but they did not believe that he was a disciple. So Paul turns up in Jerusalem, finds some believers, note it's just the disciples at this stage, not the apostles. To them, it was impossible that this man should be legitimate. And fair enough, I mean, the last time Paul was in Jerusalem, he was basically breathing threats and murder against the Christians, against the disciples. Why wouldn't they be suspicious? Can you think of someone in your life right now who seems like an enemy to Christianity? Now, imagine that person had a track record of killing Christians. Do you bring that person into your home? Imagine a combination maybe of some prominent atheists, Ricky Gervais, crossed with Richard Dawkins, crossed with, say, Abu Hass, the current leader of ISIS for the last few days, arriving at your doorstep, claiming to have had a conversion experience, right? Do you invite him in for a cuppa and bickies? For these people, Paul becoming a believer was an impossibility. But see, God has other plans, doesn't he? And it's one of those times in today's passage that we get to appreciate God turning up and doing the impossible. These people were still learning that God loves to do the impossible. It was still a lesson they needed to learn, as for us. You see, the disciples of Jerusalem at that time were still locked into this old way of thinking that only the likely could happen. That the enemies of God could not find faith in God. They could not become his strongest allies. That maybe soft hearts could, not, could choose to follow God, but hard hearts, well, maybe not. That heart was too far gone, too deep in the clutches of the enemy, too far lost in violent oppression. But see, God has news for them. There is no place that puts you beyond the reach of God. God is bigger than our tiny ability to comprehend what is possible. So we have something to learn, don't we, from the Jerusalem disciples' experience of Paul. But not only, I think we also have something to learn from Paul's own experience of the church. You see, these disciples were supposed to be representatives of God. But what does Paul get from them? A taste of the grace and the forgiveness of God? No, he gets rejection. Why? Because coming to church is not coming to a group of perfect people. We talked about this on, at men's night on, on Thursday night. Coming to church is coming to be with broken, fearful and imperfect people. The church is no less broken than the world, not at all. The church, when at its best, is like a hospital full of sick people. But at least these people know that they're sick. They realize they're in a hospital and they know truly and deeply that if it weren't for the grace of the great physician, that they too would be perishing on the street. Covery Chapel, this is the kind of church I want to be a part of. Not one that has it all together. Not one that has all the right answers. But one that is full of broken people who know their own brokenness. 
who are committed to reaching out with a hand of friendship to those who are also struggling. That is what it means to be the church. And we have an example here of one who does just that, who senses God's prompting to forgiveness, to trust. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus, he, that's Paul, had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. See, Barnabas sees Paul through the eyes of the Creator. So who is this Barnabas? You might take a brief look at his life. In chapter 4 of Acts, we already saw that it says this about him. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he's a Levite from Cyprus, and his given name is actually Joseph or Joseph, depending on which account you read. And, and Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, is his nickname. It describes something of his character. If you were given a nickname by those who knew you the best to describe your character, I wonder what that nickname would be. <laughs> I shudder to think for myself. We'll see that Barnabas later will be sent to Antioch, where the gospel is first going out to the Gentiles in a couple of chapters. It's chapter 11. And true to his name, he encourages the disciples in Antioch to remain steadfast. And it says that he does this there because he is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And Barnabas would then go on to be named an apostle. Acts chapter 14, he would accompany Paul on his first missionary journey. How good to be Barnabas to each other. Living with boldness, with grace, with encouragement. Seeing the best in each other. Have you ever had someone in your own personal history who just seems to see your best self? What do you reckon is more likely to bring out the best in you? Is it someone who sees your best or is it someone who, who sees all your mistakes? I can tell you the answer for me. It's someone who sees my best. Let's be Barnabas to each other more often, hey? But back to Paul. It says in verse 28, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So... Paul takes up in Jerusalem where he left off in Damascus, basically with bold preaching that causes people to want to kill him. Incidentally, a sign of, of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that bold preaching. But who were these Hellenists who wanted, to, who wanted to kill Paul? It's a little bit debatable, but it's actually quite likely that Paul himself was a Hellenist, at least according to Luke's definition of Hellenist. See, Luke, the author of Acts, seems to identify him as a Hellenist on a couple of occasions. We know that they were a group of Jews, the Hellenists. Some believe that they were a group of Jews with very strong Greek customs and had abandoned their Jewish ways, which kind of separated them from the Hebrew Jews. But there's actually good reason to think, at least according to Luke's definition, that the divide between the Hellenists and the Hebrews wasn't so sharp. Instead, it's likely that the Hellenists were really those who just grew up speaking Greek rather than Aramaic as their first language. And so therefore, they're probably from cities that were outside of, outside of Israel, Greek-speaking cities outside of Israel. Apparently, it's, it's quite common for one to be both a Hellenist and a Pharisee. And this fits with what we know of Paul as being both from a non-Jewish city of Tarsus and also being a Pharisee of Pharisees. But why did they want to kill Paul? 
Well, it's actually likely that these Hellenists that we find in Jerusalem, by virtue of the fact that they've left their homeland, they take their faith very seriously, they've come to Jerusalem, so it's very likely that they take the traditions of Judaism far more seriously than the native Jerusalemites. And so Paul, with his different tradition, mind you, it's not a different scripture, everything Paul teaches lines up with the Old Testament, but Paul, with his different tradition, is quite a threat to the Hellenists, and so they want to kill him. In verse 30, when the brothers learned this, that Paul was at risk, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Again, we see the Holy Spirit here directing the right time to preach and the right time to run. So they took him by sea. Caesarea was a a port city, a city on the coast. It's a short trip from from Jerusalem and then he can sail north north up the Mediterranean. Uh, And they take him back to his hometown, Tarsus. So that's where Saul is originally from, Tarsus in eastern Turkey. And we're going to pick up the story of Paul again in a couple of chapters. But what's not obvious on a quick read through is that Paul actually goes to Tarsus for about 10 years, five to 10 years. How about that for waiting for God's timing? And so that closes out Paul's role in chapter 9. And we have seen God display through him his penchant for doing the impossible. And we're going to transition now back to Peter But just before that, we've tucked in here this amazing little encouraging verse. I want you to have a look at it with me. Um, It also describes the next seemingly impossible state of affairs. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. It would be easy to think if you're in the church at that time that this persecution was so violent and so widespread that it would last forever. There will always be like this. But see, God has other ideas. Somehow, he removes all these people that violently oppose the church. Somehow, he allows for peace. But more than that, this fledgling group who needed to go into hiding, God is now multiplying. And how were the church behaving? I just love the way, I love the way they're described here as walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's any coincidence that these two events happen together, that we see multiplication of the church at the same time as the church is walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. To fear the Lord does actually mean fear, not just respect. Although not the kind of fear maybe that some of us would have of our earthly fathers, depending on what our dad was like of misplaced violence. But God-fear is not only fear, it is fear. Not only fear in a negative sense, it's an appreciation of the pure greatness of God. A fear of the one who spoke this world into existence and is a consuming fire. But that on its own is not a complete experience of God. See, there's this other aspect to God expressed through the Spirit of God. So there is a simultaneous experience of both awesome fear and perfect comfort. So that when we throw ourselves on the mercy of God, we know that he will catch us. And yes, God is fearful, but he is also perfect goodness. He is perfect love and he loves you and he wants to comfort you. Let me say that again, God loves you and he wants to comfort 
you. So we have this period of peace in all of Palestine. And then we get to see what Peter is now doing. Verse 32, read it with me. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. It turns out that Peter is not hiding out in Jerusalem, just sitting and waiting for everybody else to do all the work. No, we're told that he goes here and there among them all. Now it's true that Paul, not Peter, becomes the main character of the rest of the book of Acts. And sometimes it seems like people want to pit them against each other, Peter and Paul. But I don't think that's the right approach. There's a simple reason that Luke talks about Paul, and that's because Paul has a very special job of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles in the remote parts of the world. And that is Luke's purpose, to talk about the gospel going to the ends of the earth. But this doesn't in any way diminish Peter's ministry. So what was Peter doing through the rest of the early church period? Well, in addition to being an integral part of the Jerusalem council, he also traveled quite a bit. In fact, Paul mentions that he took his wife along, which I love. He didn't have a church planting ministry like Paul. That wasn't Peter. His role was to build up the existing church and to make sure they remained in the tradition that they had received. And this role was no less important than any other God-given role which he gives to his people. The truth is, just like Peter, only one person can do the job that God has called you to do. So here's Peter, traveling, teaching, building up the church, and he has made his way to Lydda. It's called Lod today, right next to the Ben-Gurion airport, if you're into that kind of thing. I I love a bit. I love maps. I love maps. I love traveling. Uh, We haven't been to Lod. Most people, when they go to Israel, will fly into Lod because the Ben-Gurion is the main airport. We came in through Jordan when we went there, um, so we never got to go there. But right next to that main airport today, back then, is this place called Lydda. It's a town between Jerusalem and the coast. Joppa is on the coast. Uh, Joppa is now called Jaffa or Haifa or Jaffa, depending on how you want to say it. It says in verse 33, there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Boom. Just like that. This man is paralyzed for eight years. And in one moment, his life is turned around. The impossibility is made reality. Peter is telling him to make his bed. It's like him saying, get your couch ready, same word, to have a meal. In other words, you are now able to look after yourself. You are now able to care for yourself and your family. His life is completely transformed. Notice, though, it's Jesus doing the healing, Peter says. Jesus continues to act through his Holy Spirit all the way through the book of Acts. We see it again in verse 35, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. See, God continues over and over again to do the unexpected, to do the impossible in order to bring people into relationship with him. But it doesn't stop there. Again, God demonstrates his ability to do the impossible. What could be more impossible than causing the paralyzed to walk? Well, we're going to find out. Verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Now, Dorcas, basically, Tabitha, Dorcas, both mean like a doe, like a female deer. Um, that song, I know, I'm about to sing it. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. 
uh, or the Simpsons quote, but I won't go there. She was, so she says she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, which they do, they wash someone when they're about to bury them, basically. So they're waiting to bury her. They laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood, sweet windows, widows. There might have been some windows. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. Does this sound familiar to you, like another story of healing? Some of you who know your Gospels will, will recognize some similarities. Uh, Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and then she saw Peter. When she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And what happened? And many believed in the Lord. So there are clear parallels here between this resurrection and the resurrection that we see of the daughter of Jairus by Jesus. You may even see some of the parallel language. Remember Jesus, what she says to the little girl? She says, Talitha kumi, uh, which means little girl, rise. Well, here he says, Tabitha kumi, Tabitha, rise. He's also kicked everyone out, just like Jesus did. No doubt, when Peter performed this resurrection for Tabitha, it gave him a great opportunity to talk about another death and resurrection. Namely, the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. The King of kings who took on death for our sake, so that he might take our own rebellious nature on himself and put it to death on a cross. And not only that, but Jesus' perfect righteousness would be put on us, so that all who call on the name of the Lord might be saved, and that we might experience a new life through the power of the resurrection, which conquered death once for all. If you have not yet claimed that promise, then I encourage you to do your work with the Lord. Come and pray with one of the leaders here. We would love to talk to you about how all of this stuff happens. But notice that Luke seems to spend a lot of time on the person being raised here, which is a little unusual compared to the other miracle stories. He goes out of his way to establish her credentials as someone who is both well-respected and well-loved by her community. It says she was full of good works and charity. And not only that, she has made clothes for all the widows. In the ancient world, widows were a very vulnerable group of people. They had no one to provide for them. They were at risk from safety reasons. So presumably this is at least an encouragement to Luke's audience about the kind of person that they should try and be. First, because it's good in its own right to be that kind of person. But second, look at the impact that her resurrection had on those around her. And I can't help but think that her, her reputation had some impact on that. It says that many came to believe. There is a reality that our witness as believers is not only the witness of God's power in our lives, but also the character that people see as we live out our faith in Jesus. We have great capacity to put people off. We need to take this responsibility seriously.
But yet again, we see God's desire to do the impossible for the sake of bringing people into relationships with him. You see, Peter is aware of God's capacity. And the result is that he is used by God to do incredible things. When we trust God's power, we become instruments of his power. And seemingly disconnected from the rest of the narrative, we get this interesting little snippet about Peter's next move. It says in verse 43, And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. See, the tanner was this ritually unclean person due to the fact that they handled dead animals all day. But even if that were not the case, generally tanners were universally despised in every culture in the Mediterranean because, let's be honest, stinking flesh stinks. And that's what he dealt with. No one liked him. What Peter is doing is showing that no one is beneath him, that the gospel is for all people. But this also takes us one step closer to Peter's revelation about the gospel for the Gentiles. Luke is teasing us with this detail, growing the sense of anticipation for what God will accomplish over the coming chapters of the gospel as the gospel goes forth into new places and to new people. So as we kind of bring these threads together, let's come back to the main themes that we've seen repeatedly addressed in this passage. First, that we serve a God who delights to do the impossible, especially when the gospel is on the line and especially through his faithful people. So my question is this, are you expecting God to do the impossible? I wonder if C.S. Lewis's friends were expecting God to do the impossible. What scenarios in your life need a breakthrough? Is there a situation in your own personal life, in your family, in your school, in your workplace, where you need God to show up and intervene in a way that only God can do? Is it possible that God is simply waiting for you to ask so that when it happens you recognize his hand and give him glory? Or maybe you need to put yourself in a position where you need God to come through. What does God want to do in and through you? Because I think we can limit two things when we fail to see God's ability to achieve the impossible. First, we limit that beautiful sense of hope and joy that comes from the expectation that God loves to come through. We miss out on that. But second, I believe that God's works of faithfulness to him, which he has seen from eternity past, he works those acts into his own plans for our own futures, including how we live out what we know to be true of him. And this includes the fact that God answers prayer. So that in some sense, when we don't live and we don't pray according to God's will, we genuinely miss seeing him move. But when we do live and we do pray in expectation of his power, then we more fully experience all that he has planned for us and through us. Remembering this, that as we walk in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that God will grow his church. Do you want to see his family grow? Then walk in the fear of the Lord. Know his power. Believe his greatness and walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Receive the peace that he offers and expect the impossible and be ready to watch God work in you and through you. Let's pray. Lord, 
I am blown away by your work in my own life. Taking a rebellious teenager and later a rebellious 20-somethinger and continuing to show your own grace. And Father, I know that is the story of many here. We've experienced your grace and your kindness and you desire for us to bring that message of grace and kindness to our world. We know that you are capable, Lord, of doing the impossible and I pray that you would open our spiritual eyes to see the reality that you see. And is picturing Elisha and his apprentice surrounded by the armies of the enemy and overwhelmed by the numbers against them. And Elisha's apprentice just freaking out, saying, God, Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha's saying, don't worry. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And all of a sudden is revealed around the army of the enemy, an army of chariots of fire, the real, true spiritual reality. Lord God, and I know that that's true in our lives as well, that you desire to move in ways that are beyond our imagining. So Lord, I pray that you would increase our imagination, but increase our capacity for understanding what it is that you're capable of. Lord God, make us faithful more and more to you and to your call. Father, may we trust in you. May we walk in the fear of you and in the comfort of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.